In the middle of New York City's East River, between Queens and the Bronx, is an island. An island built out of landfill and street trash that now sprawls more than 400 acres. Some people call it Torture Island. Other people say it's Gladiator School. A few years ago, protesters out front had a different name for this island. It's called Rikers Island, the Abu Ghraib of New York. And that's what it is. It's a torture chamber. This is where they murder people. They brutalize people. This is Rikers Island is home to thousands of inmates. The press has tallied up horror stories about life inside. In the last decade, more than a dozen deaths on Rikers may have been linked to inadequate medical treatment. Last year, an inmate said she was raped by guards. There's also only one road leading on and off the island. One road for visitors and workers and delivery vans and protesters. Over the last five years, protesters have laid down in the middle of that road, blocking the street. They've stood on the corner, giving speeches about revolution. This terror must stop. And there's a way to stop it. And they've always had one persistent request. Shut it down! Shut Rikers down. And the thing is, this protest, it seems to have worked. Island. Rikers Island is a stain on New York City. Rikers Island should have been closed decades ago. And many of the people on Rikers Island never should be there to begin with. Earlier this month, the New York City Council Chamber, it sounded a lot like those roadside protests in Queens. Corey Johnson, the city council speaker, he made this speech right before leading a vote to shutter Rikers for good. But conditions matter. These jails are disgusting. These jails should have been closed years ago. We are doing it today. I will proudly vote yes. Thank you all very, very much. But the activists who started all this, a lot of them are still angry. Today on the show, we're going to explain why. And we're going to talk about how Rikers became a symbol of everything that's gone wrong in the criminal justice system and what it means to tear a symbol like that down. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick with us. This episode is brought to you by SAP. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI will not help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos, but it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia, or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks, or automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. I asked Aaron Morrison from The Appeal to tell me more about the movement to close Rikers. He started reporting on criminal justice reform about five years ago. I was a local reporter in New Jersey, and then Michael Brown happened. Yeah. And I was like, I have to cover this story. Like, I have to follow the movement that is, uh, you know, looking into how we make sure that something like this 
happens less frequently. Aaron says in New York City, problems have been building up for years. Rikers is violent, crowded, and many say fundamentally unfair. That's because a defendant could spend years behind bars simply because he can't afford bail. Since Rikers is a jail, not a prison, many inmates haven't actually been convicted of a crime. They're just waiting. In recent years, all these problems were embodied in the story of one young man named Khalif Browder. So Khalif Browder is a young black man, um, well, rather I should say a young black teen, 16 years old, when he is arrested and charged with uh, or being accused of stealing a backpack. Um, and he's booked in jail and is held on $10,000 bail, an amount that he cannot afford. Um, so he is put in a part of the jail where they put juvenile offenders. And um, in that particular part of the jail, he is subjected to um, any number of uh, traumas, abuse by guards, uh, attacks from other um, from other inmates, and is also um, kept in solitary confinement for a uh pretty significant amount of time to the point where uh, it, in his own words, he's saying that that uh, is, was really what drove him into what he would later identify as uh, depression. And they told him he could get out if he just pled guilty. Yes. But he said, I didn't do it. Right. Um, and and it, it was standing on that principle. I'm not going to admit to something I, I didn't do. I'm not going to plead to something I didn't do. I think that's what helped to get the initial attention on this case, because we, we knew about Khalif Browder's story before he was released. After Khalif was released, journalists uncovered these videos from when he was in custody. They're silent, but horrifying. In one, a guard casually approaches Khalif's cell, stretches like he's yawning, and opens the cell door. Khalif is handcuffed. He's supposed to be heading to the shower, but instead... The guard slams Khalif to the ground, then picks him up and throws him in the opposite direction, mashing Khalif's head into the floor. In another video, a group of inmates attack Khalif, all in plain view of the guards. And I think it's that video coupled with his own, out of his own mouth, uh, you know, telling his story. Petrified all day. I was scared all day because... I didn't know where it would come from. I don't know. Talking about what solitary confinement did to him, how long he spent solitary. I, 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 try, I tried to resort to telling the correction officers that I wanted to um, see a psychiatrist or a counselor, something. I was telling them I need mental health because I wasn't feeling right. All, and and then the weight of three years mm. of having to go through all, all of that and be in that environment. Um, I think... That, with the video, helped to push Khalif Browder's story into like the, the public consciousness and not just in New York City, but, you know, across the country. It's scary. And I, I, wasn't, I wasn't friends with a lot of people in there. So when you don't got friends, it's really scary because you don't know what anybody would do to you. And they know you don't got nobody to back you up. So. Yeah. Now, now this is a delicate question. And, and if you don't want but, to talk about this at this point, um, totally you know, obviously um, it, the story ends in tragedy when after he's released, after he does become a, a lightning rod and, and speaks out and, and, and gives interviews and uh, really um, is the inspiration around the Close Rikers movement, the trauma took its toll on him uh, and he took his own life. 
2015. To me, as a New Yorker, I felt like Khalif Browder's death, it gave it gave the movement this focus. For some reason, I think when you have so much horribleness, it becomes a blur. And then when you have a focus of one person, everyone can start seeing themselves inside that person. Right. There's two interesting things for people to know about Rikers. Um, people didn't become outraged about what's going on at Rikers after the Khalif Browder story. There had been complaints of, of rampant uh, abuses um, in the back in the 19, uh, early 1990s. Uh, and that's when Rikers' population was huge compared to what it is now. It's triple uh, in the 90s what it is today. And, you know, part of that is the down, downward trend of, of the daily population is, um, has moved with the downward trend in major crime and violent crime in New York City. But what we know is that there are still stories, horror stories, that are coming out of Rikers. I mean, so let's think about it. You're arrested charged with a crime not convicted not convicted yet you're you're waiting presumably either for your trial or for a deal uh, or to enter a plea Um, but the conditions on the inside of the jail are such that you may not even make it to your trial Um, and I think that's a reality that so many people don't realize um, is happening like literally across the country And I, and I think it, it helps that, that there are people um, who heard Khalif's story um, and used that to um, reframe the conversation around criminal justice reform. Now, let's remember that by this time, um, there is a bipartisan understanding um, and, 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 and willingness to address criminal justice reform as not only as a social issue, but as an economic issue, you know, there are, were plenty of Republicans and conservatives saying, you know, this our criminal justice system, it's 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 huge uh, and it's costing us a lot of money. And for them, that was an issue that that that, you know, that sort of helped turn the tide. Hmm. They're like, well, uh, let's figure out a way to, to shrink the size of our, our criminal justice system. Um, so so you have the bipartisan, um, you know, sort of foundation for what would then lead to uh, these conversations around the country, but also in New York City, what's happening in, in on the grassroots level in local communities, but then also what's happening in our media and our art, uh, I think also played a role in pushing um, not only Khalif Browder's story um, into the forefront, but the stories of so many other folks who have similar uh, experiences um, that, that built the case against uh, a place like Rikers. So you're describing this kind of perfect storm moment, a lot of things happening at once. Mm -hmm. First of all, this young man dies, and there'd already been a movement to close Rikers because of longstanding issues with how the guards behaved and the facilities. How did, as this movement began to grow, how did it also begin to change? So so two two things were, were happening. You know, you had these really traumatic stories to point to. Um, but then you also had to contend with the the downward trend. Um, the fact you, that fewer and fewer people were incarcerated. Exactly. You 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 could not be dishonest about about that. Because that was 
a fact. I mean, it is a fact. We're, we are locking up fewer people in New York City today than we have uh, maybe ever, but certainly in the 90s when, when um, the population at Rikers peaked. Um, so if that is the, the case, if that is the reality, then I think it, it really shifted the conversation around um, the, the activists who wanted to see something even further than just decarceration and, and, and dropping the, the rate of people who, who are, are locked up in the first place. So this month, the city council met and they voted on a plan for what to do next with Rikers. This is a long discussed idea. What happened? The city council voted on a plan that would close Rikers by 2026. And meanwhile, they would construct four jails in Brooklyn, Manhattan, the Bronx and Queens. Um, And those jails would be near areas where people could easily access them. So, you know, if if your family member is in, um, you know, the Queens jail, you presumably don't live that far and, you know, are able to to visit. Uh, and, And I think it's palatable because if I live in Queens and my brother is locked up in a jail that is two subway stops away from where I live and I can go visit him, you know, as often as I like or whenever the jail allows me to, that creates a dynamic for my brother who probably will fare fare better uh, if he knows that he still has there are people who can come see him and still care about him and are you know um, um, haven't forgotten about him. Because on Rikers Island, it was it's literally an island. It's literally an island where if you live in Queens, then you you take a subway. That's sometimes it can be like a, a couple of hours to get to where you need to to be. Then you take a bus to actually get on the island. Then you wait for however long it takes for them to bring your loved one to uh, the visiting room where you can uh, where you can you can see that person. So we're we're talking about taking that um, process uh, and shrinking it to one where you know you're not actually removing people from their communities but keeping them sort of connected to the people who likely care most about them. So so th- it was it was that idea that I think really helped pe- some people to say, oh, actually, that, that doesn't sound too bad. Yeah, I mean, I guess in, the idea is if you have more eyes on everyone, right. that it creates less possibility for abuse, too. Because right. if your family's visiting you more often, it's easier for them. They're going to notice if you have a black eye. Exactly. They're going to notice if something's going wrong. You're going to tell them. Exactly. Now, this plan, it does reduce the number of jail beds. Yes, it does. You know, right now, 7,000 people in Rikers. Mm -hmm. This would get it down to 5,000. So for advocates, does that feel like any kind of win? Well, it, it depends on who you ask. The price tag was such that you're saying, yes, close Rikers, but build these new jails at a cost of $8 billion that could be spent on so many other things. And, and what they were asking for was more services, more community programs, more diversion programs, um, s- shifting that funding into, into a place that would keep the incarceration rate you know, where it is or maybe even going, going even lower. I mean, even Bill de Blasio said, uh, the, the mayor said, yes, you know, we're going to, with this new plan, we're going to be able to cut the average uh, daily population of our jails in half hmm. further. So, you know, we, you, you just said 5,000. 
they they want it to be 3,500 people um, that would be uh, you know jailed in in our city's jails at any given time. But but there are also folks who are saying, look, if you build them, they will fill them. They can make all the promises in the world about locking fewer people up, but if there are empty jail cells and the politics shift in our in our city or in our country, where uh, criminal justice reform is you know not as sexy as it you know it as it has been, then you could see those jails fill up overnight. Just just a shift and just a, a small shift in in the the public awareness and and the politics of. Uh, of what decarceration means. For these activists, decarceration means a permanent commitment to not just putting fewer people behind bars, but finding ways for them to avoid the criminal justice system entirely. Closing Rikers, it's a first step that can have a powerful ripple effect. Think of it this way. If, If the jail population is going down, then that means maybe prosecutors' offices don't need as many ADAs. If you don't need as many jail beds um, and you can close down portions of a facility, are you saving money in how many guards you've employed? Are you in need of as much money and funding as you needed in the in the 90s? No, you don't need you don't need those things. So what I, I think what some of the activist groups said is that, okay, all right, great. Now let's take some of that money and reinvest it in things that will actually improve the lives, improve the quality of life for, for folks who had disproportionately been uh, subject to, you know, mass incarceration policies in this country and, and in the city. What's interesting is that advocates are making this argument that jail beds, it's like the ultimate stick to use against the police force, where if you don't have some place to put someone, you have to stop just like bringing people in for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. So the fight against jails becomes a fight against a lot of other things that have been very resistant to change. Right. Yes, we're talking about the jail, but um, each person that's, you know, in, in one of those cells or in one of those beds in the jail, it often started with an interaction with with the police department. So um, you can't decouple uh, those two things um, if if you're talking about um, decarceration. You have to change what police officers arrest people for. You have to change what uh, prosecutors pursue as far as cases. Uh, what do do they divert? If a person needs mental health treatment, are they um, making those resources available to that person? If a person stole a sandwich and is clearly just hungry, it, it, are there city services or resources that say, we don't have to send you to a jail cell for, for this? One thing that struck me recently, after, especially after this vote to close Rikers, was um, the idea that You've got the New York governor, Andrew Cuomo, um, proposing to add 500 police officers to police the subways. And I don't know if you've seen uh, the recent video that's gone viral where um, there is a young man uh, who they've accused of 
uh, fair beating, jumping the turnstile. Uh, and he's sitting inside of a subway, uh, and he's got his hands up. And the reason why he has his hands up is because there are about five or six officers outside of the train with their guns pointed at him. My mind goes to a place of, okay, so if you're adding police officers to the subway, I can't imagine there's a world in which you're adding those police officers to just sit around and twiddle their thumbs. These other stakeholders, um, not all of them have to change the way they do their their jobs, the way they, that they function in the system unless people force them to. So yes, you can be closing you know, jails, you can be closing prisons, but if you're not dealing with shrinking the size of other sort of stakeholders or, or institutions within that whole system, the politics shift and you can fill that jail up even though there are fewer beds, you can still fill it up really quickly. Aaron Morrison, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much, it's a pleasure. Aaron Morrison reports for The Appeal. All right, that's the show. What Next is produced by Daniel Hewitt, Mara Silvers, Mary Wilson, and Jason DeLeon. I'm Mary Harris. You can find me during the day on Twitter. I'm at Mary's desk, and I'll talk to you tomorrow.